0: Alrighty. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I just have a couple of quick housekeeping notes for you, and then we'll get right into this. Um, for those of you claiming APA credit for this course, don't forget to sign out on the blue sheet located over there by the water station. And then also, I was asked to remind everyone, if you are using the Pain Week app, you can give course feedback by clicking into the course within the app and scrolling to the bottom and they would appreciate anyone giving course feedback. Um, thank you for coming to course BHV03, Non-Pharmacologic Management of pain Essential, ah, pain Essential Tools for Frontline Clinicians. Our faculty today is Dr. Ravi Prasad, so please join me in giving him a warm pain week welcome. Right, good afternoon, and thank you for joining me here today. So, I've got no disclosures, and for today, there are several different learning objectives that we have. Uh, first, I want to help you identify the role of psychological factors in the etiology and maintenance of pain conditions, review the role of interdisciplinary care in pain management, and most importantly, explain how to incorporate behaviorally based approaches to pain management in medical appointments. Certainly respect the fact that many of you guys are physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, and you don't have a large amount of time in the sessions that you have with your patients. And so I want to go over some tips of how you can incorporate some of the skills and techniques that we'll go over in your appointments. So I'm going to start by giving you guys a little bit of context of pain. I want to look at pain from a 30,000-foot perspective. So the Institutes of Medicine put out a report in 2011 characterizing the incidence of pain within the U.S., They found that chronic pain affects approximately 100 million American adults, and this is more than the number of people affected by heart disease, cancer, and diabetes combined. But what's even more staggering about this is the estimated cost of $500 to $600 billion in medical treatment and lost productivity. Now, even as we look at these figures, all of which are pretty staggering, this is still a gross underestimate of pain within this country. Why do you think that is? What do you see missing here? It's one of those interactive-type sessions. <laughs> That's right. It's just covering adults. This doesn't have pediatric populations. This doesn't include people that are incarcerated. This doesn't include people in the armed forces. So you can imagine that when we add in those additional groups, that all of these numbers, the number of individuals affected and the costs are going to be that much higher. So clearly we need to do something about pain within this country. But what causes pain? Unfortunately, it's not as clear as Gary Larson would like for us to believe, right? So in that cartoon, uh, surgeons are cutting a person open, pull up a porcupine, they say, well, I guess that explains the abdominal pains. If only abdominal pain could really be that easy to diagnose, that would be wonderful, right? So we know that there are different pathways for the onset of pain. We know that there are biological factors, we know that there are physical factors that can influence the onset of pain. I'm gonna talk to you guys more about some of the different psychological factors and their role in pain. So first, we'll start off with talking about depression. So uh, Curry and Wang examined uh, the relationship between major depression and the onset of chronic low back pain uh, in Canada. Uh, There's a national population health study that was done where uh, participants received survey questionnaires uh, with the two-month interval in between. Approximately 9,900 people participated in this. And what they found is that if a person endorsed a history of depression at time one, there were three times more likely to develop chronic back pain compared to non-depressed individuals. And for those of you who say, well, yeah, that's Canada. We're different down here. right? I've got news for you. We're not that different from our neighbors to the north. So uh, over a course of a 16-year period from the 1980s to the 1990s, um, the NIMH was trying to characterize the prevalence of psychiatric disease in this country. And so they surveyed uh, over 20,000 individuals throughout the U.S., And in the Baltimore catchment area, they surveyed a number of different people in three different waves. And in a study looking specifically at the Baltimore catchment area, they found that a lifetime history of a depressive disorder, and if a person endorsed depression at time one or time two, uh, they're at three times greater risk for reporting chronic low back pain over that 13 year period. So, again, this doesn't necessarily mean that depression causes low back pain, but there is. Uh, some indications that uh, the depression is predictive of development of back pain over the course of time. But that's still just one thing. That's just depression. We know that there are a larger set of variables that can influence our health and behavior outcomes over time. And this is something uh, that interested uh, some folks at the CDC and Kaiser. So how many of you guys are familiar with the ACE study? Okay, so a number of you guys are. So what this is, the Adver Childhood, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is trying to examine how early life experiences influence health and behavior outcomes over the course of time. Uh, this is a collaboration between Kaiser and the CDC, and they started collecting data on individuals in the late 1990s and gathered data from over 17,000 individuals at that time, and they're continuing to collect information on these people over the course of their lives. But what the authors were interested in was understanding how specific adverse childhood experiences influence health and behavior outcomes over time. And they identified nine specific adverse childhood experiences. The first being physical or emotional neglect, and this refers to not having your physical or emotional needs met, so the physical needs such as uh, food, shelter, things along those lines. Recurrent emotional abuse, recurrent physical abuse, having sexual abuse that involves contact, Anybody in the household having a substance abuse problem, um, having anybody in the household incarcerated, having chronic mental illness in the family, witnessing the mother being treated violently, or being raised by one or no parents. And what they found is that of these nine adverse childhood experiences, the more ACE variables, the more of these adverse childhood experiences that a person endorsed, the higher the risk for developing medical and psychiatric disease, chemical dependency, substance abuse issues. Uh, It was a predictive of health quality of life issues partner violence sexual activity and suicidality and data is continuing to be collected they're going to be collecting data over the course of these individuals lifetimes to better characterize how these adverse childhood experiences truly impact functioning over time but these early preliminary findings really aren't that surprising to us Um, in a review of the literature that spans approximately 30 or approximately three decades Paris found a significant association between a history of sexual abuse and a person carrying a lifetime diagnosis of functional GI disorders, non-specific chronic pain, non-epileptiform seizures, or chronic pelvic pain. And then last one I'm gonna go over is surgical outcomes. So there was a literature review that was specifically looking at the role of pre-surgical screening, pre-surgical psychological screening uh, before people were receiving implantable therapies. And they're interested in looking at how these uh, screenings were able to influence, or excuse me, able to detect successful outcomes over time. They define successful outcomes as decreased pain, increased function, return to work, or reduced medical utilization. And what the authors found is there was a positive relationship between one or more psych factors and poor treatment outcome in approximately 92% of the studies that they reviewed. But what was most interesting about this was that the Factors that were really useful, predictors of poor outcome, were pre-surgical somatization, depression, anxiety, and poor coping. But the factors that were minimally predictive were pre-treatment physical findings, activity interference, and pre-surgical pain intensity. Now, when I talk to my surgical colleagues and they try to determine which person might be a good candidate for a procedure or for a surgery, these are typically the factors that they use to make that determination. But these were minimally predictive of successful outcomes over the course of time. So what does all of this mean? You know, while certainly we know that there are some uh, pain conditions that are caused purely by psychological factors, what this really means is that virtually all pain conditions can be influenced by psychological conditions. So even though psychological factors may not be the cause, they can certainly influence the etiology and the maintenance of that pain condition. And For those of you who can't read this, this is really a cartoon, but it really depicts my wife. And what it says is the pain starts in my husband's lower back then it travels up his spine to his neck then it comes out of his mouth and into my ears and that's why I get these headaches. And that's why at about 3.30 all of you guys will have a headache as well. All right. So that's kind of looking at, again, from a a 30,000 foot perspective the role of different psychological factors in the onset of pain. Um, I want to focus for the rest of the time in talking about the role of psychological factors in treating pain. But before we talk about that, it's important to understand approaches to pain treatment itself So let me start by asking guys this Does pain serve any purpose or function? Okay, what purpose is that? Protects you, avoidance, right? In its most primitive form, the primary function of pain is to serve as a warning sign, right? It alerts us to some sort of damage that's occurring uh, So that we can avoid some particular activity So that we minimize tissue damage to the body, right? But is that true of all pain? Is all pain a warning sign that there's some sort of active damage occurring and we need to do something right now to prevent more harm from occurring? No. Yeah, you just saved yourself another extra hour of me talking to you. So no, that's not true of all pain, right? And this is where we start to get the differences between two broad categories of pain. For those of you who went to the 7 o'clock lecture this morning, I went over this uh, in kind of a summary format, but I'm going to spend a little bit more time now talking about the differences between acute and chronic pain. First and foremost... With acute pain, the pain that a person experiences is a sign of active harm occurring in the body. There's some sort of tissue damage occurring, and the avoidance behavior serves a protective function. It, allow, it minimizes the amount of tissue damage a person has. So for example, let's say that I'm cooking in the kitchen. The first thing you know about me is I'm a liar, because I never cook and I'm never in the kitchen, but hypothetically speaking, if I was, if my hand touched the stove, I'm gonna feel pain, right? And that pain's gonna be a warning sign of damage occurring in my body, my hand burning. If I didn't feel that pain and my hand continued to rest on the burner, what would end up happening? I'd have a burnt hand, right? So I'd have pretty significant tissue damage. So the pain served an adaptive function. It alerted me to damage. In the case of chronic pain, however, the pain that a person experiences is absolutely real. right? But we know in the case of chronic pain, it's not a sign of active harm occurring in the body that requires some sort of immediate action to prevent more tissue damage from occurring. The pain may be the result of an injury that occurred long ago. It could be the result of some other insidious process, but we know through the extensive workup that's already occurred for a person by the time they've got this chronic pain diagnosis that while that pain is real, it's not associated with active harm. So one of the ways that we try to conceptualize this to our patients is thinking about chronic pain as being a false alarm within the body. Right? If we were to go down to a parking garage right now, and if all of us sort to of stand around a car, None of us touched it, there are no vibrations that go off, but all of a sudden, the alarm goes off. We can hear it, we can see the lights flashing. We're not going to try to convince ourselves that, well, we're just imagining this, the lights aren't really flashing, we can't really hear that noise. We would conclude that, well, since there's really no threat to the vehicle, it's just a false alarm. And that's one of the ways that I encourage patients to try to conceptualize chronic pain, that yes, that pain is real, but it's not a sign of some sort of active damage occurring that requires immediate intervention. But this is a tough thing for patients to grasp because they're so used to conceptualizing their pain in this acute paradigm. But beyond that, when a patient engages in avoidance activities in chronic pain, this can actually be maladaptive. It can, over the course of time, lead to further problems with pain, and we oftentimes see a cycle that we call a fear avoidance cycle start to develop where a patient is either fearful of causing more harm to their body or they're fearful of their pain, so they start to avoid any activities that may trigger their pain, which over the course of time can lead to more problems. Beyond that, we know that there are differences in etiology, right? In acute pain, oftentimes there's a very clear, very single source that we can trace back to the onset of the pain. So using another example, let's say that I went out jogging this morning, I was running, and I tripped and I fractured my ankle. More evidence that I'm a liar because I certainly don't exercise, and if I did, it wouldn't be running. But hypothetically speaking, if I was, right, there's a clear pathway for my pain. I've got pain in my ankle. It's because I've got a fractured ankle. And there's a clear single cause there. In the case of chronic pain, though, it's oftentimes characterized by a much higher level of ambiguity, and it's multifactorial. So what do I mean by that? Well, with the ambiguity, just because we can give a pain condition a name, we might be able to say a person has complex regional pain syndrome, a person has fibromyalgia. We might be able to identify a neuropathy and the specific dermatome that's involved. But just because we can do that, we can't explain why is it that two people that have the exact same mechanism of injury one person goes on and develops chronic pain, but the other person doesn't. We know that there are different factors that predispose a person to develop chronic pain, but predisposition and cause are two different things. So that's part of the ambiguity. But then the multifactorial nature is critically important. You know, Let's, let's say that um, I'm dealing with a chronic pain condition. I've got a, a chronic low back pain. If I've got chronic low back pain, I wake up in the morning this morning and I find out that my alarm didn't go off and I missed the lecture that I was supposed to present. And then as I'm coming downstairs, I get a call on my phone that says that something happened in my house in Houston uh, during the floods. And then as I'm uh, coming in here, responding to that, I find something else is going on in our clinic. All these different stressors that are happening are gonna directly influence my physical back pain. It's gonna start to get worse, right? And I'm not imagining it getting worse. I'm gonna spend some time later today talking to you about what the physiology of the stress, but my pain will actually get worse. In the case of acute pain, though, that's not necessarily the case. You know, in that example I gave of running and fracturing my ankle, even if all those other stressors are going on, that's going to have really minimal impact on my overall experience of that acute pain. Then these things all have direct implications for treatment course. So acute pain, first and foremost, has a fixed endpoint. By definition, acute pain will go away at some point in time. Immobilization is oftentimes essential for recovery. Right? If I keep walking on that fractured ankle, it's not going to heal, it's just going to get worse. Um, and medications may get prescribed. It may get prescribed short-acting opiate medications, oxycodone, hydrocodone, to try to help take the edge off the pain so that I, in, until my body heals. In the case of chronic pain, though, there is no fixed endpoint. We can't tell patients that if they do all the things that we teach them that they're going to somehow have a miraculous end to their chronic pain condition. But this has significant impact on these other two factors. We know that immobilization will actually worsen a chronic pain condition. But also, overactivity can worsen a chronic pain condition. So if a patient does too much, they pay for it. If they do too little, they're paying for it. So there's a fine line between doing too much and too little. And the challenging thing is is that line jumps around from one place to the other from one day to the next or even one part of the day to the next. You know, For a person living with chronic pain, where that appropriate level of activity is maybe at one place at 10 in the morning and a completely different place at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And lastly, with medications. Um, I spent a bit more time talking about medications this morning, so I'm not going to get into that right now. But we have to have a lot more caution with the medications, because now we're talking about prescribing drugs for a condition that doesn't have a fixed endpoint. So issues of tolerance, issues of psychological dependence, physical dependence, abuse, addiction, all these things have to start to be weighed in. And it's not a matter of medications are bad, we should just avoid those, or no, we should medicate until the person's got no pain. We really have to approach this with a lot of caution. Uh, looking at each case on a case by case basis, or looking at each patient on a case by case basis, and evaluating the pros and cons of longer term treatment with medications, regardless of if they're opiate or non opiate medications. So, chronic pain and acute pain are two completely different beasts. If we're working with the person with chronic pain and treat them using acute modalities, we're not going to get too terribly far. Right? What that's going to look like is us constantly trying different medications or trying different procedures but not getting any significant improvement or benefit over the course of time. So we have to take a different approach with chronic pain, and the approach that we take is a management approach. Right? And the management approach to pain is the exact same approach we take with any kind of chronic health condition that doesn't have a cure. Diabetes, asthma, heart disease, all of these are chronic conditions that we don't have a fix or a cure for, but instead what we focus on is what can we do to try to maximize the quality of life for this individual? How can we maximize their functioning? So patients oftentimes have a hard time grasping this concept of of management of pain. When they hear that, they think, what do you mean? I have to live with this pain like this for the rest of my life. I can't fathom what that might look like. And so I often start with the simple example of diabetes, one of the most common chronic conditions that's out there, right? Do we have a surgery or a pill or an injection that fixes diabetes? No, it has to be managed, right? What are the things that a diabetic has to do to manage their condition? They check their blood sugars, they have to regulate their diet, they have to get exercise. And if a diabetic does these things, certainly it's not an exhaustive list, but if they do these things, their condition can be managed, and they can still have a very good quality of life. Well, in pain, we know that there's a a similar set of ingredients that a person needs to have on board in order to optimally manage their condition. The first thing is medical optimization. And this refers to all aspects of a person's medical care. Looking at their medications. Are they on too much medication? Are they on too little medication? Are they on the most appropriate medication for their condition? Is there a role for procedures? Is there a role for implantable therapies? Is there a need for surgery? And this is where physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs fit into the picture. The second component is physical reconditioning. And this involves looking at all aspects of a person's physical functioning. When a person's living with chronic pain, there's oftentimes a tendency to guard the part of their body that's hurting. So again, if I've got chronic low back pain on the right side, then every time I stand up from a chair, every time I get in and out of a car, in and out of bed, I'm going to be protecting that part of my body. I may end up overcompensating using the left side of my back. right? And the muscles on the right side may start to weaken or atrophy. So in physical reconditioning, a physical therapist looks at the part of the body that are affected by pain and makes sure that they're kept as tone as possible, making sure that any compensation mechanisms that we're using aren't causing more problems to other parts of the body over the course of time. The last component is basically everything else, and this is behavioral lifestyle modification. We know that regardless of what the core cause of a person's chronic pain condition is, different substances, different stressors, different emotional states can all influence and intensify that pain, and this gets back to that multifactorial nature of chronic pain. And so this is where psychology fits into the picture. Helping patients develop a greater awareness of what these factors are, what the mechanisms of action are, and what they can do to start to influence these different factors. So optimum pain management involves work of an interdisciplinary team of these different individuals. And all of the ingredients are are necessary to try to help a person have the best likelihood of improving their quality of life and functioning. And so it's much the same as a diabetic. A diabetic really can't pick and choose which aspects of their care that they wanna do, right? If a diabetic says, you know what, I know this diet's supposed to be good for me, but Splenda's not real sugar, so I'm not gonna adhere to the diet. And I hate sweating, so I'm not gonna exercise. But you know what, I'll I'll check my wounds, I'll take my medications, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll check my insulin. Is that gonna be sufficient to manage that condition? No, what's gonna happen over the course of time? It'll worsen, right? And so it's a very similar paradigm with chronic pain. Unfortunately, our patients can't pick and choose what they want to do. They can't say, you know what? I never like shrinks, and PT always hurts me, so I just need to find the right physician who will find the right drug for me, right? Anytime we find our patients pigeonholing themselves in any of these categories, they're ultimately selling themselves short. Optimum pain management is a combination of all of these different factors working together. Now, what the combination is, varies from one individual to the next, and that's why we need to try to individualize a treatment based on that patient's particular situation. So I'm gonna talk more about these specific behavior and lifestyle modification factors. What are some of the different things that we do as psychologists to help patients learn how to manage pain? Well, as I mentioned before, our primary goal is to help patients learn how to live with pain. Even after I give that diabetes example, majority of my patients still have a hard time grasping it. They they oftentimes tell me something like, that's diabetes, but you know what? Diabetes doesn't hurt, which isn't really true because people can have diabetic neuropathy, but that's often the response that I get from my patients. And so I try to conceptualize it to them this way. Imagine this square is representing your life. If I were to meet you somewhere in a lobby out here today or we're on a flight back home together and we're talking about your life, what kinds of things do you talk about? What are the things that fill your life? Family, that's it, work, family, conferences you go to, your pets, our leisure activities, our hobbies, all these things, our faith, right? All these things are the things that fill our lives, right? And these are the things that give us quality of life. One day, a pain condition sets in, right? And it gets center stage because it's something new. It's something that's demanding a lot of attention, a lot of time. But we still have space for all the other things that give us meaning, Over the course of time, as this pain condition evolves from something (laughs) acute to chronic, it starts to radiate out, and we start to have a lot of impact in the other areas of our life. Uh, Activity levels often decrease. Um, We find that people start to pull away um, from social activities. People start to pull away from work. They have increased uh, uh, work absenteeism. Um, As people start to pull away from different activities, they can have increased emotional distress. And I'm not talking about necessarily clinical depression or clinical anxiety, but just depression, anxiety, frustration, as we define those words in the dictionary. Uh, Sleep disturbances can often ensue. You know, where a person may be sleeping too much, sleeping too little, not getting restful sleep, and this may be the result of their pain condition or it may be the result of medications that they're taking for their pain condition. We oftentimes see increased number of doctor office visits. I oftentimes have, not often, but I've had a number of times patients tell me that the most significant social interaction they have is not they come to our clinic. And I find that particularly sad because I know the people that are in our clinic and that's really sad if that's the extent of their social interaction. <laughs> Interpersonal problems can start to develop, right? This certainly makes sense that as a person pulls away from the things that start to give them quality of life, as they're not able to work and provide, they can start to have conflict with other members in their social circle. And then again, physical deconditioning. As a person pulls away from activities, they can start to have atrophied muscles Uh, which over the course of time just worsens that physical pain condition. So a lot of times when you talk to somebody who's living with a chronic pain condition, you don't hear them talk about their faith, their family, their pets, their work, and those types of things when you ask about their life. What you hear them talk about is their medication trials, their failed procedures, the next appointment that they have. And what they're talking about is the pain's life. They're no longer telling the story of their life, but it's all this other stuff that's been overshadowed and stopped them from being able to do the things that give them meaning. So helping a person learn how to manage their pain doesn't mean fixing the pain. As I mentioned before in one of the earlier slides, we can't fix chronic pain, but the goal is to eliminate a lot of the distress caused by the pain and decentralize the role of pain in that person's life so that they have space for all the things that give them meaning. So how do we do this? Again, it's that interdisciplinary approach of medical optimization, physical reconditioning, and behavior and lifestyle modification. And I'm going to focus more now for the rest of the time we're here on the role of different psychological factors, behavioral interventions, to help with managing pain. So oftentimes, uh, in pain psychology, the curriculum pieces that we go over, whether it's done in a group fashion or if it's done individually with the patient, these are the common things that we often do. There's oftentimes an overview of pain, which is very similar to what I just went over with you guys, helping patients understand the context of what their pain is. We talk about pacing of activities. This is critically important. As I mentioned before, living with chronic pain, if you do too much, you're paying for it. If you do too little, you're paying for it. So helping patients navigate that fine line between those two extremes. We talk about pain and stress physiology. You know, a lot of times patients are very fearful of saying that stressful factors or stressful situations worsen their pain because they're afraid that they're, there's gonna be a conclusion that, aha, your pain is all psychological, it's not real. But that's not the case. There's actual physiologic reasons why stress makes pain worse. We talk about relaxation training as a means of influencing the cycle. We talk about sleep hygiene. We identify environmental stressors that can exacerbate pain, both in the home and work environment. We help patients develop stress management strategies using a combination of different cognitive tools, behavioral tools. We teach patients communication strategies, and this is a very important one: flare contingency planning. This is critically important because we know that we can't fix a pain condition. We know that a person is gonna have flares in their condition, even if they're doing all the things that they're taught. So given that we know that a flare is something that's inevitable, it makes sense that we should try to prepare the patients as best as possible for dealing with these inevitable events. Because if we don't do this, and we just have a patient involved in interdisciplinary care, and they perceive that they're getting better and better, and they have a flare that sidelines them, Oftentimes we see them say, you know what, I knew that it was too good to be true. I really can't function, this was just a a myth. I shouldn't have done all these different things. And they start to take steps backward. But if you can help them prepare for the inevitability of flares and help them develop plans for how they'll deal with the flare, then that flare just starts to become a speed bump. It becomes a blip on the radar and part of that experience of chronic pain rather than something that has to set them back. So what I'm going to focus on today um, is give a little bit more information about the role of relaxation training, and cognitive behavioral interventions. So, first, understanding the basic makeup of the body's nervous system. I'm in a room full of, of clinicians, so I'm sure that this diagram is no mystery to you. Uh, but we're going to focus more on the autonomic nervous system and sympathetic and parasympathetic activity. So, whenever our brains detect the presence of a stressor, right, the brain activates a sympathetic nervous system. When the sympathetic nervous system is activated, a whole host of changes happen in the body. Heart rate increases, blood pressure increases, blood vessels constrict, muscle tension increases, digestive processes slow down, stress hormones get released, and all this happens instantly, right? We don't do anything to make it happen. As soon as the brain detects the presence of a stressor, it activates a sympathetic nervous system. As soon as the brain detects that the stressor is no longer present, it activates a parasympathetic nervous system, which brings the body right back down to its previous baseline. And again, it's an automatic process that we don't have to do anything to influence. So all of us have felt this before. Think about if you're driving in your car and somebody cuts you off in traffic. All of a sudden you hold your breath, you tighten your grip on the wheel, uh, you may feel your heart beating really fast, a beat of sweat on your forehead. That's a sympathetic activation in the face of the stressor. But as soon as you realize you're a safe distance from that car in front of you, after a few choice words and hand gestures, you feel your body calm right back down. And that's that parasympathetic nervous system bringing you back to your previous baseline because you realize that there's no imminent threat. Now, why am I spending so much time talking about this? A couple of different reasons. Number one, if we look at some of the changes that happen with that sympathetic activation, constriction of vessels, tightening of muscles, and we think about pain that a patient might have, what do you think is gonna happen to a person's pain? A person who's got low back pain, if the muscles in their back are chronically tighter than they need to be, if blood vessels are a bit more constricted, restricting blood flow to that area, what's gonna happen to that pain condition in that that region? It'll worsen, right? And this is one of the reasons, certainly not the only reason, but it's one of the more tangible reasons in terms of why stress can make pain worse is through this activity of the body's nervous system. Now, what's also important to realize is when we learn about this sympathetic reactivity, this fight or flight response in the body, it's always presented to us in high school biology as a life-threatening stressor. They always give the example of a person being chased by a saber-toothed tiger and they get the fight or flight response uh, uh, as a protective mechanism. But the reality is, is any type of stress is going to cause some degree of activity in the body's sympathetic nervous system. So whether it's a life-threatening stressor, like being cut off in traffic by another car, or if it's an emotional stressor, such as having an argument with your significant other, the magnitude of the sympathetic drive that we have will differ depending on the nature of the stressor, but we're still going to get some degree of nervous system reactivity in the face of any type of stress. So if this is true and it is, because I wouldn't lie to you, at least not today, pain itself is a physical stressor, right? So the physical experience of pain is gonna cause activation of the nervous system, that sympathetic activation. And the changes that happen with that sympathetic activation are gonna turn around and feed back into the pain. And so we oftentimes see that the physical pain will just feed off itself. But that's still, again, just the physical experience of pain. When people have pain, they have emotions that go with it too. You can have anxiety, anger, guilt, sadness, The thing is, each of these emotions are also stressors. So each of these is also going to cause further activation of the nervous system, which will then drive back into the pain. But we're still talking about just that small world of the pain. People have lives outside of pain. Uh, Stressors in relationships, financial strains, sleep issues, issues related to diet, all these external factors also feed into this cycle, activate the nervous system, and become additional links into pain. And you can see here that This is part of the reason why we need to take an interdisciplinary approach to pain management. If we just focus on one modality of treatment by itself, there's no one thing that's going to help address all of these different cycles. So learning how to break this cycle, we can learn how to break this cycle on two sides. Learning how to break it on this side here is where relaxation training comes in, breathing and relaxation exercises. And what we're basically doing, I'm not going to go into the details of what we teach patients when we teach them breathing exercises, but what we're basically doing is teaching folks a systematic way of breathing that helps to decrease the sympathetic reactivity and increase more of the parasympathetic drive within the body. Um, It works for two reasons. Number one, that simple reason of uh, changing the nervous system reactivity. And number two, the element of distraction. If a patient is focused on relaxation training or regulating their breathing, uh, they have limited bandwidth to focus on other things. And so whether it be their physical pain, whether it be other stresses going on in their life, they're not able to focus on those things and continue those things feeding into that nervous system reactivity cycle. But more importantly, beyond the distraction, it's more of what we're triggering um, at the level of the body's nervous system. And so this is one of the most effective things. And a lot of times when we teach our patients breathing and relaxation exercises, this is what we're targeting. But it's critically important that you make sure that you teach the patients appropriate diaphragmatic breathing um, in order to really fully break this cycle. And again, in the interest of time, I'm not gonna go into all the details of what that is, um, but it's an extremely useful tool in breaking the cycle here. So breathing exercises, they don't fix pain. They don't end pain, but they become part of a tool that patients can use to manage their pain. And, but when they're done with the breathing exercise, a lot of times they say, but you know what? My pain is still there. Well, of course it is, because it's not a cure, and because we're just working on this side of the equation. Oftentimes, we need to also help patients learn how to break the cycle on this other side, and this involves addressing the different cognitive processes. right? Between the physical experience of pain, uh, before a person has an emotional reaction, before the physiologic reactivity, they have cognitive processes. So we tend to act as if we're simple stimulus-response creatures, but the reality is we're not. Right? The way that we interpret things is what influences our physical, emotional, and behavioral outcomes, not just the situation itself. Right? So, for example, if I say to the gentleman sitting in front of me, that's a nice tie that you have on today, right? The situation is I'm complimenting his tie, as everybody turns to look at him. If he thinks to himself, well, I'm glad that he noticed that. I thought that it looked particularly nice with the jacket that I'm wearing, Um, and I specifically brought this because I thought that it would look nice within the the desert environment that we're in in Las Vegas. So, (laughs) consequently, emotionally, he might feel content. Uh, Behaviorally, he might smile, as he did. Um, and physiologically, when you think about that sympathetic nervous system reactivity, he's not going to have a lot of sympathetic reactivity. He's going to be in more of a calmer state. And if somebody asked ask him, why are you smiling? He's going to say, oh, it's because of that comment that he made about my tie. He links it back to the situation, right? But let's take that same situation. I say, that's a nice tie you're wearing. If he thinks to himself, why is that guy criticizing my tie? You know, earlier today, somebody else I had lunch with, they made a comment about my tie. And, you know, last time I was at work, somebody looked at me funny when I was wearing this tie. You know, why don't these people just shut up and mind their own business, and why doesn't he focus on his wardrobe instead of looking at me? So if if that's what you thought, then consequently, emotionally, you'd probably be angry, right? Behaviorally, you might be a little bit more irritable. You might snap at other folks. And physiologically, you're going to have a lot higher level of sympathetic nervous system reactivity. And if somebody asks you, why are you so irritable? You're going to say, because he made a comment about my tie. So in both cases acting, again, is a for stimulus-response creatures, that I did this because of the situation. But the reality is it's not the situation that caused that. It's how we interpret it. And this is true for all of us. But part of the reason why we don't necessarily make this link, there's two reasons. Number one, that's not how we talk. Right? He's not going to say, well, I'm smiling because of the way I interpreted the situation of him commenting on my tie. Right? It's too wordy. That's not how we speak. But most importantly, because our thought processes tend to be automatic. Um, we don't usually stop and think about how we're going to think about things, right? We have a number of automated thought processes which allow us to function in a very busy environment of our lives. So our thought processes are oftentimes rooted in our early life experiences, and they shape our core perceptions of ourselves, the world around us, and our role within that world. And again, they're shaped by our early life experiences. So the messages that we get from Parents, the messages that we get from teachers, the messages we get from other kids at school, all of these things shape our, our thought processes. And these messages can be direct or indirect, right? They can be benign or not benign. For example, a, a child who uh, is always the last person to get picked to play sports, right? There's an indirect message there, I must not be good enough. And the child starts to internalize that, and that becomes part of their own cognitive processes. Or when we think about the adverse childhood experiences, you know, emotional abuse, so for example, a child who gets a lot of criticism, a lot of harsh words, a lot of physical or emotional abuse in their environment, that starts to shape uh, their cognitive processes, their interpretation of themselves and the world around them. We know that many maladaptive behaviors are rooted in dysfunctional thought processes, but it can take a significant amount of time to start to change these thought processes. It's not just a matter of developing awareness of them, But changing these automatic processes takes a bit of time and practice. Catastrophization is an aspect of uh, cognitive cognitive processes that can directly influence pain outcomes. Catastrophization refers to exaggerated perceptions of a situation being worse than they truly are. And we oftentimes see three different characteristics with catastrophization. We see magnification, so blowing the situation out of control, and these are the patients who on the scale of zero to 10 rate their pain as 15, right? rumination, where they keep replaying that over and over again, and helplessness, feeling powerless to make any change or or influence what's going on. And catastrophization refers to thought processes that influence the outcomes that a person has. With catastrophization, we know that there's a higher level of affective distress. A person's always sitting around waiting for their pain to worsen, so they tend to have a high somatic preoccupation. And oftentimes they'll engage in activity reduction as a means of coping with their pain. They're hyper aware of their pain being there, and they'll do whatever they can to avoid it, which can lead to guarding or restriction of activity, which leads to that fear avoidance cycle. Um, And catastrophization is associated with higher levels of long-term disability. So applying this model to pain. Let's say that a person has a pain flare. If they think to themselves, this is never going to end. Life is terrible. The day is ruined. Well, naturally, if a person's thinking that, they're going to feel some sadness, anxiety, anger. Behaviorally, they may either overextend themselves or they may isolate themselves. And then with this different reactivity, it's going to cause sympathetic nervous system reactivity, tightening of the muscles, constriction of vessels, which is going to, in turn, worsen their physical pain. As that pain gets worse, the thought processes oftentimes become more polarized. The emotional outcomes become more severe. And this cycle just keeps repeating itself. You know, it took me about 30 seconds to walk you through it, but patients will go through this cycle hundreds of times in a matter of a second. So we need to break this cycle. We can't go and eliminate the pain. The pain is already there. It's not really effective to try to just intervene at the level of the consequences. Right? Have you ever told somebody who's angry to just stop being angry or stop being sad? Right? We can say it, but it's not really effective, and it doesn't really work. Um, A person could try behaviorally to try to do breathing and relaxation exercises, but if these thoughts are going on in their mind, it's going to undermine any benefit from the breathing activities. So we have to target these automatic thoughts. So there are several steps that are involved with this. The first is developing an awareness of the thoughts, and that's harder than it seems because, again, a lot of our thoughts tend to be automatic, and so people aren't always cognizant of what they're thinking. So the first step is develop an awareness of what you're thinking in that stressful situation. The second step is to analyze those thoughts on two dimensions. It's not as simple as is it a positive versus negative thing or or happy versus sad. What we really know is that it's the degree of accuracy and helpfulness that influences the outcomes that we have over the course of time. And so we assess each of the different thoughts on these two different domains. Is this helpful, is this accurate? And if we can't say yes to both of those questions, then we need to modify the thoughts until it is helpful and accurate. But when we modify the thoughts, we need to try to stay as close to the core thought as possible, right? So if a person's thinking, there's nothing I can do to control this, life is terrible, nothing's going to get done today. If they try to think in their mind, yeah, but you know what, it's a really pretty day outside, you know, that may be true, but the likelihood that in the midst of that situation, a person's going to latch onto that and hold onto that belief is minimal right? So that's not really effective. We have to try to stay at the core of the original thought process. So with these, we ask ourselves, are they helpful? Are they accurate? We know that the answer is no to all of those. And so we modify the thoughts into something that is helpful and that is accurate. I can practice self-management skills. Life may feel terrible now, but I know this flare will end. I don't know what the rest of the day will be like, but I'll make the most of it by pacing. Again, this isn't a person predicting what the day is going to look like, but they're just modifying their thought process to make it more accurate and helpful. So in that same situation, they had that pain flare, had more accurate, more helpful thought processes. It doesn't mean it's going to eliminate sadness or eliminate the emotional distress. That may still be there, but at a lower level of intensity. It's more likely to help a person engage in healthier behaviors, um, and then when they engage in interventions such as breathing and relaxation exercises, it can be more effective at calming the nervous system reactivity and starting a different process where the thought processes, physiologic reactivity works synergistically to help get a person into a better space. So there's a lot of data that supports use of cognitive behavioral interventions in pain. Um, Linton and Anderson did a study uh, many years ago looking at 213 individuals uh, who, had a, who had an injury. And part of the group received regular treatment, uh, which was just informational brochure. Another group received cognitive behavioral-based treatment. And they found that the risk of developing long-term disability was nine times higher um, in the group that did not receive the cognitive behavioral treatment. What was nice about this is they followed up with these individuals after five years, and they found that uh, the people who did the CBT group still had significantly less pain, higher levels of activity, better quality of life, better general health compared to the minimal treatment group, and their risk of long-term disability was, or, or the risk of long-term disability was still three times higher in the group that didn't have the CBT-based intervention. So showing some sustainable changes over the course of time. I um, mean, again, we're not saying that they're cured, but these people were more engaged with life. Gatchel tried to put a number on this. You know, what does this mean financially when people participate in these types of cognitive behavioral programs to help managing their pain? And so in a study of people, a similar type of a study where people participated in the CBT-based group, some people who didn't, and they found over the course of time that the people that participated in the cognitive behavioral therapy-based interventions had significantly less cost in their health care compared to the people who didn't, right? Approximately a third difference. So there's a cost benefit as well to participating in the different cognitive behavioral interventions, uh, Cochrane Review of Multidisciplinary Programs for Pain, again, looking at the physical, the psychological, behavioral interventions, along with medical piece, found uh, moderate quality evidence for improvements in pain and daily functioning. Um, so what can you do to incorporate this in your appointments? Right? Certainly, uh, some of you guys in the audience may be psychologists. A lot of you may not. You may be thinking, well, this is all great, but I've got 10 minutes with my patient, and I live in an area where we don't have psychology. We don't have multidisciplinary programs. One of the most important things is education, right? From the very first time you start working with the patient, educating them on the course of pain, helping them understand the differences between acute and chronic pain, and helping them set realistic expectations. Um, you want to look for sinister meaning. You know, if the patient is interpreting their pain as something fatal, right? A patient who reads their imaging report and that says they have degenerative disc disease, and if they have this image in their mind that their body is going to crumble, right, which many patients do. We want to try to address those things to help address those cognitive processes and inaccurate perceptions. Uh, direct patients to useful websites. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of good information out there. The American Chronic Pain Association is a great organization that has a lot of useful information for patients and individuals living with pain. You want to set functional goals. Uh, there can be a tendency to want to just look at a numeric rating of a person's pain intensity when they come in for visits to help guide your care, but that's not going to be too terribly fruitful. Right? You really want to look at what a person's able to do uh, despite their level of pain. So setting functional goals and assessing how they are in those things. So having the patient themselves describe what is, what's something that you're not doing now that you want to do. Make sure that that goal is realistic and make sure that the treatments that you engage in are geared toward accomplishing that goal. You want to emphasize self-management strategies and you want to try to consistently reinforce a biopsychosocial conceptualization of the pain etiology as well as a pain treatment. And so with that, uh, we have just a couple minutes for questions. Yes, sir. You said over and over and over again that chronic pain in the end cannot be cured. Uh, there's a piece of you that agrees with you. And, uh, and another piece of, I'm sorry. Uh, he's just been saying that chronic pain can't be cured. And there's a piece of me that makes that I want to think that's realistic. On the other hand, it seems to me as though a lot of people have had some success being cured of it through neuroplastic methods. And I'm just wondering what you make of that. So certainly when I say it can't be cured, it's, it's one of those things that We don't have a a set paradigm to fix pain, but even with neuroplasticity and changing how we're approaching situations, that requires ongoing management on the part of that patient of continuing to adhere to those different thought processes and principles for those brain pathways to remain that way. If a person stops doing that, and they've got that pain condition that's there, they can revert back. And so in that respect, I would say it's almost the same thing as a person who's got diet-controlled diabetes. The diabetes is controlled, but as long as they're engaging in those healthier behaviors. And so I would say it's much the same type of thing with chronic pain. Now, of course, there are some pain conditions that do get fixed, right? But the majority of the ones that we deal with don't, and it still falls within that management paradigm. And those folks who are in that space, so they're able to have a higher level of functioning, I would argue that they're in a good place of management. Does that, does that make sense? Any other? Any yes. Wait, hold it, hold it, hold it. Thank you. How long does a course of cognitive behavioral training take and is it individual or group? So how long does a course of cognitive behavioral therapy take? So oftentimes, well it can be individual or group. Um, Oftentimes when we teach some of these different things to patients in a group setting, it's usually about nine session group. Um, When people are doing individual work, it's roughly about the same, six to nine sessions. But what's really most important, there's there's not a prescribed amount that this is what it takes in order for it to be effective, because it varies from one patient to the next. But the part that's most critical is the patient's engagement, right? We can have a person come to nine sessions of individual or a group. They can come to 25 sessions of individual or group. But fundamentally, if they're not doing the things that they need to do, right, doing the active part of treatment, they're not gonna get the benefit no matter how many sessions they have. And that's one of the things that I think is one of the biggest limitations of our literature is that when they're looking at the effectiveness of these different interventions for pain management, it's just looking at a person who participated in a class, but it's not necessarily looking at, are they actually doing what they learn in those things? So it's it's hard to characterize exactly how much a person needs it varies from one individual to the next, but on average, uh, we see usually it's about nine sessions. I'm getting there. Hi, thank you for your talk. Do you have any experience in implementing this through telemedicine or phone-based clinics for those of us in the VA that are working in that area? So I don't have any direct experience, but there are a large and growing number of people who are starting to implement these different programs uh, through telehealth processes. Um, I don't have information on the efficacy of those, but there is a large and growing number of people that are doing that. uh, in a similar fashion, though, it also depends on how a person, how engaged the patient is with their own treatment. But I couldn't comment on the, the data right now in terms of that, the telehealth effectiveness. Yeah. That's an easy one. One second. Before we're over here, I'll get to you though, I promise. Hi, thank you. Um, I, I really appreciate your talk. Um, I'm, I'm an internist, but I'm the medical director for a pain rehab program in the Pittsburgh VA. Um, The reason I'm commenting on that is that it's my job to motivate patients to engage in in these programs. And what I find has been helpful is explaining that this is really the cutting edge of pain management and that not only do we have this kind of clinical data, but we also have fMRI data to show changes in um, brain structure and function, which seems to help patients appreciate that we're not just waving our hands saying that you're going to get better. Right. Absolutely, and that's the part of that neuroplasticity that's... Uh, there was one back there here someplace. Hold hand. No. Is there a particular um, book, or a of sessions, like a, a book or book or particular model that you would recommend using a partic- as a resource? Is there a particular book or model that we'd recommend as a resource? There's a wide range of different books that are out there. I know uh, Richard Wanlass at UC Davis um, has a book on managing, like... Uh, Aging and Chronic Disease. Uh, there's an older book by Margaret Cadell, Managing Pain Before It Manages You. Um, it, they, these don't necessarily have a set protocol, but elements of these things are yeah. part of what we go over um, in our sessions with the patients. And that, those books, um, the uh, uh, American Chronic Pain Association website, oftentimes people who do live in far areas or they don't have access to services that I do evals on, those are the resources I usually recommend for them. Okay, thank you. Um, wait, hold it. I'm getting there. <laughs> I can only walk so fast. Yeah. Can you repeat the names of those books, please? Sure, Margaret um, Caudell was one. and One was Managing Pain Before It Manages You by Margaret Caudell. Um The other one, I can't remember the exact name, but it's by Dr. Wanlass, W-A-N-L-A-S-S. He's at UC Davis, and it's about managing aging, life processes, uh, and then the American Chronic Pain Association. What I like about the ACPA is uh, it's an organization created by people with pain for people with pain. And a lot of times we have patients who, they won't necessarily listen to what I have to say because they say, well, you're the clinician, but they'll listen to their peers. And so the ACPA's got a lot of really good resources on their website. All right. Thank you very much. All right.